welcome to episode five of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss recent publications in the field of musicology and finish each episode with Research in the Round, our roundup of selected new musicological publications. My name is Stephen Graham and I'm here as ever with Liam Cagney. Hello. This episode, like the last one, features an extended discussion of one article and issues arising from that article. We're going to look today at Ben Pickett's Indeterminacy, Free Improvisation and the Mixed Avant-Garde Experimental Music in London 1965-75, to which was published in the Journal of the American Musicological Society in the fall of 2014, or as I said in a previous podcast, autumn of 2014. Pickett is an Associate Professor of Musicology at Cornell. He holds an MA in composition at Mills College, where he studied with Alvin Curran and Pauline Oliveros, and completed a PhD in historical musicology at Columbia University. Pickett's research interests are broad, but based centrally, I think it's fair to say, on questions of experimental music culture as an evolving and historical entity or ecology, to use a term he adopts in this article. This is reflected in publications like his 2011 book, Experimentalism Otherwise, The New York Avant-Garde and Its Limits, which analyzed emerging networks and correspondences within and across 1960s experimental music, from free jazz to fluxus to popular music to Cage and his circle, as well as in his edited collection from 2014, Tomorrow is the Question, New Directions in Experimental Music Studies, which covers everything from NPR expansionism in the 80s to Sonic Youth, Pauline Oliveros and Julius Eastman. Pickett has also written a series of very interesting articles that reflect or expand on these research interests, including the self-explanatory Actor Networks in Music History, Clarifications and Critiques, which was published in 2014 in 20th Century Music, as well as the award-winning and kind of fascinating Deadness, Technologies of the Intermundane, which was published in 2010 in the Drama Review and was a co-authored piece with Jason Staniak about, as they say, an arrangement of bio and necro worlds where the living and the dead interhandle each other in the production of cultural and social worlds. So that's an examination of things like the revival of dead celebrities in advertisements, in posthumous releases, in, in holograms and in other media forms. So indeterminacy, free improvisation and the mixed avant-garde very much swims in Pickett's favourite waters. As its subtitle indicates, this is a survey and, if you like, mapping of experimental music in London in the period 1965 to 75. This mapping or excavation, and I'm using multiple metaphors here in order not to impose my own preferred term, i.e. mapping, is developed through the specific lens of Music Now, which, is a non, which was a non-profit organization run by Victor Schoenfeld in London from 1967 to 1976, which produced concerts that embodied, in Pickett's words, a wild coupling of post-Cajun and post-Coleman spontaneous musics. That's John Cage and Ornette Coleman. This wild coupling tells a story about, in Pickett's words again, expanding experimental ecologies, about what he calls a mixed avant-garde, then in his eyes took in everything from the free jazz of someone like Sun Ra to the improv of Evan Parker, Taj Mahal Travelers and AMM, the collective experimentation of the Scratch Orchestra, and even the expansive kind of rock-ish music of acts like Soft Machine and Henry Cow. Pickett's argument in this article is that through looking in detail, perhaps slightly too much detail, we'll come to this, at the historical record as represented here by archival Music Now material, press articles from the time, and Arts Council's memos and other materials, 
as well as interviews conducted by Piglet with some of the key players, we can identify the material conditions for a mingling of musical traditions for a stylistically heterogeneous avant-garde that included artists working with both improvisation and indeterminacy, which Pickett gathers perhaps problematically or not under the heading of spontaneous music. And so he's therefore telling the story of a fragile piecemeal network, eventually showing how that network got crossed and in his eyes surpassed or displaced. As he says, reflecting his interest in actor network sociology, experimentalism, like any music historical entity, was a messy series of encounters and performances. It was made and remade in specific acts of translation, i.e. the rendering of differences into equivalences, as he says, and these acts were never centrally controlled. In looking at these acts, Pickett thinks, we can challenge accepted acts of scholarly grouping with evidence of more haphazard acts of practical grouping performed by historical actors. So he does all this, just very briefly before we open out into conversation, through a series of steps which run in the following sequence. We hear first about a backstory of fault lines established in the 50s and 60s in the US and Europe between John Cage's indeterminacy and improvised music musics of various kinds. We then get a brief but punchy historical sociology of cultural value that surveys shifting high and low musical forms in the late 60s and 70s. We get a consideration of free improv as a potential endpoint of musical indeterminacy, a discussion which, as elsewhere, is informed by racial tensions, as later explored by someone like George Lewis. And then we get a thorough long and detailed narrative examination of Music Now's staging of various concerts, tours, and events. And then the article culminates with, as Pickett describes it, the crossing of the network, where ideological and generational tensions and differences led to a further stage of evolution and change and the breakdown of the Music Now axis, the kind of specific mixed avant-garde that Pickett is writing about, and a kind of an evolution into a new a new kind of context and a new collection or constellation of music networks. So before opening out, I just want to nail my colours to the mass just very briefly by way of a disclaimer. I'm currently working on an article somewhat in this spirit and indeed in this in this specific area. I'm looking through a different lens, historically speaking and musically speaking, but I'm very much kind of beholden to some of the things that Pickett discusses and some of his kind of historical arguments. And I've even been in touch with him about one or two things. Um, so I'm not coming at this with anything like a clean slate. I just wanted to mention that explicitly before we get going. So with all that in mind, Liam, I'm dying to know what you made of this article. I made many things of this article. So let me just start with one of the moments at random. I would see this article as being part of a kind of general current towards trying to come up with different historiographical models, although it has certain things in common with my own work. For example, in my PhD, I drew heavily on reception history to try and reconstruct in regard to French spectral music, how this music was conceived of at the time, how people were talking about it and thinking about it, and how that might actually have something to say about our current concept of that music. For me, in this article, one of the things that Pickett is doing very well is actually addressing our current concepts of different genres and different types of musical practice by going back to an early stage in history when the boundaries were a little bit more fluid, uh, when the histories hadn't yet been written, and trying in that way to tell us about the present by way of the past. That One of the things they say about 
science fiction, so just to take a different domain, is that when an author writes about the future, they're not really writing about the future, they're actually writing about the present through a future vision. And perhaps we could say by analogy that in looking at the past here, Pinkett is actually talking about the present. And it's a very useful way of actually trying to trying to nail where we are right now, which is one of the notoriously difficult things for an historian to do. How are we ever really able to to describe where we are in something like an impartial way or without too many presuppositions? So I suppose uh, in that way, it's like an archaeology in some respects. And in other ways, and in, in as much as it draws on actor network theory, I think uh, methodologically there are Maybe there are some things in common with that structuralist um, French approach that, that gave birth to Foucault's archaeology. Um, that's not one of the overt features of this article, but it's just one of the things that I saw as, as in it. And maybe that's just me projecting it. So that's to talk about one aspect of this article. In general, the, the scholarship is really impressive. She's done so much archival research, a lot of interviews, reconstructed the period, I think, um, in great color and detail it's an entertaining article to read as well as being very informative one of the things that really interests me about this approach is its relationship with journalism and where do you draw the line between journalism and scholarship it's one of these um, conceptual divisions which in the domain of music uh, i think he's encouraging us to see is more fluid and i guess in the domain of scholarship or writing the difference between journalism and scholarship isn't always so well defined but we can get back to that in a moment maybe uh what about you Stephen? what was your reaction yeah i mean I, I echo your positive sentiments clearly i am very much wedded to these kind of crossings um and these kinds of kind of inter intermingled musical traditions what i'm in, particularly intrigued by though and what you've just said is this relationship of the now or the the kind of the present sense of music as a set of encounters and set of temporary and contingent settlements. I and mean, that's a very maybe overcomplicated way of describing just music scenes and, and the kind of messy way that music develops as a, as a kind of culture. And I'm really intrigued by the relationship of that to this period that he's writing about to 1965 and 1975. And maybe the way in which this parallels what Richard Taruskin has said about early music, that maybe when we try and reconstruct these kinds of periods, we're merely, not maybe merely, but we're also um, reconstructing our, our present or reconstructing the past through the concerns of the present. So I'm interested in maybe what you have to say about the relationship between the current musical moments and the musical moment that he's trying to write about and the way in which one can stand in for the other in different ways. So the present can inform what he wants to write about and what he writes about in 65 to 75 and then how 65 to 75 gets kind of re-articulated as a presentiment of current crossings and interminglings, if you like. I think in a few ways this period is key. So the late 60s into the 1970s, aesthetically, I guess stylistically, there are crossovers between relatively new artistic practices, which we still have today, but also economically, there is, I think, well, in the case of um, notated um, Western music, there is a bit of a transition, to speak in broad terms, from solitary composer focus to a collective and a group practice. And you can see that in different countries, in France and Germany, West Germany, 
um, in the USA and Italy and so on with various groups. Somebody like Boulez even cites that in relation to Earcam, that it's sort of representative of the zeitgeist in regard to a more appropriate focus now being on teams of researchers or practitioners moving away from composers working in solitude. So there, I think there are a lot of ways in which this period is a very important one for clarifying or for investigating the present moment. There are a lot of uh, presuppositions about our distinction between different genres and, for example, high art and low art or John Cage influenced uh, experimental music and then like free jazz uh, or Nick Coleman and so on. But as Pickett rightly points out, when you go back and look at this period, the late 60s, a lot of this was happening. A lot of these musicians were crossing paths and being performed at the same concerts. I know in France, for example, uh, some of this free jazz was being performed alongside notated music in the late 60s and the early 70s. And you did have concerts where Lamont Young was performing alongside Sun Ra and that type of thing. But I wonder whether we should be surprised about these things because... I wonder whether these distinctions are merely theoretical. Um, for musicians, music is music, and they just do what they do, and they don't necessarily think theoretically about things, and they don't necessarily make these divisions that we kind of sometimes cling to. They just create, and the specific type of creation that, say, a free jazz musician or a free improv musician is engaged in, I think, is inherently about transgressing, if you like, these boundaries. It's about eroding boundaries, about subverting identity about kind of infecting different domains so that uh, if these musicians are hard to pin down it shouldn't be any surprise so what do, what do you think about uh, i don't know if this is uh, opening a can of worms but actor network theory do you think it features much in this article because obviously Pickett is is identified uh, with the method well i think the fundamental conceit of actor network theory it's one of those things like neoliberalism the theory and the practice are often two very different things. And the theory as laid out in Bruno Latour, some of his work and in the way I encountered it was Prince of Networks, which is a book by Graham Harmon written about Bruno Latour's work. The theory would suggest that actor networks are defined as a flat, de-antagonized network of interactions and actions and translations. And Pickett uses terms like actor, translation and so on, which shows his kind of theoretical biases or, or interests. Insofar as this is a historical model, which suggests that networks and actions by different kinds of actors, be they individuals, institutions, nonprofit organizations like Music Now, press magazines, and so on, are significant and, and indeed kind of add up to musical history as such, Insofar as that is a conceit, I, I buy into that. Where I have a problem with actor network theory is the theory, not Pickett's application of the theory, but the theory, and Graham Harmon has said this about actor network theory, is too flat. It doesn't give you a way to differentiate between the value of different acts. So if everything is merely an act of translation, why should we look at one act of translation rather than another actor translation? Why are some entities or actors more significant or powerful or prominent over other entities? The theory of actor network kind of sociology would not seem to allow those kinds of tabulations, if you like, or those, those kinds of um, judgments about why different acts are more significant than others and so on. 
However, and that's a criticism I've seen leveled against actor network theory all over the place. It's too de-antagonized. It's too much about kind of flat um, translations, which are devoid of power and hierarchy and value. But in specific applications like this one, I don't really see that flatness. I see a kind of an attention to clustering and power and contingency and messy coalitions between, for example, Victor Schoenfeld and the Arts Council, mm -hmm. the way that there's has to be a struggle between someone like Schoenfeld and then the people in making decisions about where Arts Council money is going to go to. And in laying out, for example, the different tours that Music Now organize. So they bring Sun Ra over to play a series of concerts. They, they put on a tour from AMM. They put on a series of concerts at the ICA, which mixes. Who's that? that? It's MEV. It's AMM. It's it's composers, it's improvisers. In doing all these things, they have to negotiate very specific practical problems and tensions between institutions and individual taste and very pragmatic things like how much room a venue has, where, it, what kind of attendance they need to get to break even, all those things. So this article is very, very historically textured and detailed. And in that sense, actor network theory, if that is the mo prime motivating force for this article, which it seems to be, which is a, a judgment I'm making based on both Pickett's background and also his use of terms, like I said, like actor and translation and so on. The issues I maybe have with actor network theory don't really impact on this article all that negatively. Yeah, I would agree with uh, what you say there. Uh, the, the issues that I have uh, as well don't impact on the, the article, which I think is an excellent one. It's very informative and all the rest, as I've said. What interests me in particular in what you just said is this issue of flattening out. And uh, I just would recall that in the first couple of podcasts, I think we focused a bit on musical analysis. I wonder if that's sort of like an absent presence here. This These movements towards sociological methods in um, musicology have been very fruitful and they tell us a lot as they do here but I wonder if to some degree there's this sort of ghost of talking about the music itself which kind of haunts some of these articles it's something I thought about my own work actually in my own PhD thesis which is very thin on the ground in terms of analysis was all of this in some ways a surrogate for talking about quote-unquote the music itself or a way of kind of uh, deferring having to really talk about aesthetic value and to, to, to engage with the music in that way because it's something we, we will always have to come back to and uh, I totally agree with what you say about the flattening out element we don't get a sense maybe in this article of why why certain musicians ought to be privileged over the others or whether they should be. It's interesting isn't it because clearly there are value judgments informing Pickett's range of choices and clearly there are value, there are currents of value and taste informing the kinds of shows that music now put on the kinds of ways they were written about the, the reception of these tours and the very kind of influx music culture that this was kind of operating within and in some way contributing to so clearly value is, is circulating very intensely in in this network if you want to use that term and in Pickett's framing of this network I wonder though in what way this Pickett's approach and I'm very much echoing him in my article I'm working on at the moment which just so just not to be coy about it it's it's about the 70s and early 80s and it's maybe to be simplistic about it it's whereas Pickett is writing about the first generation of improvisers and how their work succeeds or builds upon Cajun indeterminacy um, which, following George Lewis, he sees as a, a kind of a mislabeling of improvisation. He thinks indeterminacy is 
a racialized distancing of black musical forms. His his focus here is on a mixed avant-garde, which is drawing together com- composition, composition informed by spontaneity, and maybe we can come back to this term because I'm interested in his use of it here, and improvisation per se. I'm looking at a slightly different nexus or collection of musics, which succeeds this one. So maybe the second generation of improvisers kind of unpop music, like industrial music and noise music in the 70s and 80s, a kind of a, a successor mixed avant-garde to this one. But I'm, I'm wondering, do I fall into the same trap in that article as he possibly or potentially falls into now, building on what you were saying there a moment ago, Liam, about the kind of displacement of music analysis with social analysis. And I'm just wondering, to play devil's advocate with you, whether the social analysis is a kind of a, a metonym of music analysis here, where we might not need music analysis because the social analysis is implicitly performing the music analysis, if you like. I hadn't thought about that at all. I'm, just to clarify, I don't mean that uh, we should try and comprehensively write about the music in question. He very ably writes about uh, the historical and social sides of it here and that doesn't mean he doesn't have to write about music analysis and so on just throwing that thought out there but what do you mean is the music analysis kind of written into the article by virtue of the way in which it's a kind of shadow presence in all the interactions and exchanges between musicians and the decisions made about let's put on this person Sun Ra's coming over he's written about in this way and we do get some musical description of course but it's, it's fairly limited as it maybe has to be because the article is already 40 x number of pages yeah. long and as he told me in an email there was a lot of detail which he had to remove from from first draft so there's a, already a lot here I, i'm sure you would echo this it's not that we're saying that he needed to put in more but it's just that he made certain choices about what he wanted to cover and m- music is not so much a strong presence and the thing i'm just maybe putting forward and maybe this is just a, a rationalization of my own decisions in this in the article i'm working on but i'm just wondering the maybe social analysis here is a kind of displaced form of music analysis since the social analysis is comprised of musicians decisions and responses to music musical acts and so on so is the music here but just in a kind of a displaced form that absolute nonsense no it's a really interesting point never considered that i'm not sure what how i would um respond to it i guess one of the functions of musical analysis here i might propose in relation to his general argument about kind of melting some of these historically um unjustified musical categories the role of musical analysis might be to help us come at better concepts of the music in question so if he's saying that there are these ramshackle sets of associations that spill across conventional parsings of the world um, and all of it comes under the name experimental music for me it'd be very interesting if he fed them at the end back into the concept of experimental music so what does experimental music mean what does you know how do we define that i suppose it's going into sort of ontological music philosophical area which isn't what, he, what he's necessarily covering but i think ultimately in the scholarly community that's what i would like to see happening from this type of scholarship which is very interesting it's it's historiographical sociological and it's some, this is an area I'm interested in, but I think what would be most interesting is if the gains made here fed back into musical analysis and a more theoretical kind of thing. Well, that, that okay, so there's two things there. There's the music and feeding back into music analysis and feeding back into theory or, or concepts, if you like. And those two things don't necessarily have to be separate, but there may be two, two layers that might have been drawn out more. What I'm really fascinated there by is that 
and in his in this article is that he he chooses not to spend so much time on definitions. He could have doubled the length of this this piece by going into what experimental music as a term means, what spontaneous means. I'm particularly fascinated, as I've been alluding to, in this decision that he makes to use spontaneous as a catch-all for all these musics. He doesn't, I, I might be misremembering this, but he doesn't really explain that. Okay, yeah. justify or defend or defend it. it. It is a really interesting concept for me too. Um, maybe I'll bring in here a CD I was listening to recently by the Welsh composer Richard Bard called uh, "Music for Cello and Electronics." It's a double CD, um, with three long works on it, performed by Arne de Force. And one of the things that de Force stresses in his notes in the CD is that this music aimed towards capturing the spontaneous sort of moment that we experience just when the two pieces of material hit each other, the cello strings and the bow, that that was sort of like a guiding principle for Bart's music. And Bart's music moves between notated composition and improvised passages in those works and that CD. So yeah, this whole idea of spontaneous music, I think it's something that could straddle notated and non-notated musics, and it's something that can actually maybe help us reorient our, our, our conference. What we're talking about here is a little excerpt from Barrett's Naxaltran. that arguably straddles the line between different uh, kind of binarisms we have between notated and non-notated music and so on. Uh, we're both obviously fans of Bart's music since we included a little bit of it in our introductory um, theme. But what do you find problematic then in the term spontaneous? It's not so much problematic as potential. So I, there's so much, there's so many avenues that that term potentially kind of proposes that it's almost as limiting as it is kind of freeing because it's so unfettered. Like it's so, it opens up so many possibilities as a description of music that it's almost impossible for it to function in any meaningful way because what music is not spontaneous. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get you. So whether in its conception or its execution. Yeah. Isn't there like an old classical term, which is meant to be giving the impression of improvising, but actually it's, it's all, obviously planned out and notated in advance. So th these are very classical ideas, but if you like, even Boulez's Explosion Fix, you know, fixed explosion uh, captured something similar. So yeah, maybe it's not such a unique. Well, look, as you say, there's, there, there's definitely degrees of spontaneity, if you want to use that term. So the Scratch Orchestra would do different types of performances. They would do compositions by members. They would do much freer things. They would do renditions of tunes and so on. Free improv groups like AMM would do completely undetermined, in some senses, improvisations. But of course, as many people who've written about these musics from, including Derek Bailey to other people, have acknowledged, this music is never without context or without precedent. There's always a sense of idiom, personal style, background informing people's decisions and choices in those moments but i guess the spontaneity or the 
the freedom in the name comes in in the way in which, for example, interactions between small groups of people, as Ben Watson writes about a lot in his books, drive a kind of a, a risk or a musical decision making in the moment, which is fundamentally different to a performer, notwithstanding degrees of spontaneity, which can never be removed, makes decisions about replicating or trying to replicate an idealized score in certain in certain contexts within the Western classical music tradition. Spontaneity is always informing every one of those situations from a free improv show or performance to a pianist performing, you know, a, a Brahms piano concerto. There's elements of spontaneity in both, but of course there's there's degrees of it. So one is operating from the presumption of novelty, the other is operating from the presumption of conformity. So there's that. So spontaneity is useful in the sense of differentiating from something like the performance of Brahms to the performance of a group like AMM and then performance of KG and scores and so on. So in that sense, it's meaningful. But I just wonder, is it too woolly or muddy a term to effectively gather together all the things that to come back to Pickett he is writing about? Or I wonder, at least, might he have spent a bit more time teasing out the implications of the term? So maybe, no, not to put words in your mouth, but maybe you think it's maybe too journalistic, not not theoretically watertight enough. It's just descriptive uh, rather than um, interpretive. Possibly. I think, I, do you know what? I didn't really have a I'm I'm prob I'm kind of talking myself into having a problem with okay. the term okay. weirdly. Yeah, actually, that's why I, I don't want to make it. Words in your mouth, obviously. I, sorry, go on. Well, just I mean, reading his article, I thought I I paused for a moment when he he started using spontaneous, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. He hasn't painfully, you know, spent three pages giving a um, a torturous survey and kind of reflection on what the term might mean. And I thought, oh, that's that's fine, that's interesting. And he used it throughout the article, and I knew what he meant which is maybe all we can ask of, of theoretical terms like that. So I knew, or, or overarching terms that try to do some theoretical work. So in that sense, I actually respect and really buy into his use of spontaneous here. I just wonder whether there are some larger musical aesthetic problems, which the term maybe covers over or is, is reductive in response to in some way. So for example, um, there's different forms of spontaneity in all mm -hmm. these musics. I'm not sure whether they are all spontaneous. I think my issue fundamentally is that it's it's both it does two things one of them positive one of them negative the positive thing it does is it draws together a lot of different musics under a fairly serviceable concept and category and it does that well enough to be meaningful but then obviously the limitations of using just such a broad term to describe all these musics is that we could find many points of kind of contrast between these musics and in relation to this term which maybe tell us that the term itself is too kind of flaccid or too kind of loose. But isn't that part of the maybe motivation here to have a concept that allows these different fields to, well, not merge, but to show that they cross over sort of like a Venn diagram or something like that. So you have a concept that's like capacious enough to admit these different practices and to reflect the fact that they're crossing over with each other. Um, but I guess that's one of the theoretical challenges here. You, I think that's something that a, a concept has to do, but at the same time, the concept needs to almost paradoxically be precise enough to tell us exactly what it's talking about. Yeah, and I think it does that up to a point. And it's it's idiomatic insofar as one of the things he's writing about is the Spontaneous Music Ensemble, John Stevens' group from this period. It does reflect important traits within free jazz, within composition, and it is, it is, it is maybe free of some of the racialized tensions that we find in terms like indeterminacy and improvisation. So in that sense, 
it is a very useful term. Okay, so we've we've talked in detail about certain aspects of this article. Maybe just to draw back and look at some of the global issues again. What what do you think of the level of historical narrative detail he gives in the in the kind of central segments of this article when he moves on? So as I said earlier, he kind of initially surveys uh, cultural value at the, in this period. He looks at the relationship of indeterminacy and free improvisation. He looks at very nitty gritty questions like maybe in, improvisation is the end point of indeterminacy and He's more or less convincing on some of those points, depending on what you bring to the table, I guess. But when we get to the central narrative, he, he goes through the story of music now in painstaking detail and surveys each of the tours they put on and each of the series they put on and so on. And like I said, uses things like interviews and detail from the historical archives, such as memos and, and so on from the Arts Council to bring his story to life and give it anchor it in kind of detail. So what did you make of all that? I found it really interesting to read. I think it was very persuasive as an historian. Uh, it pays a lot of attention to detail, doesn't really take make too many assumptions. A couple of almost random observations, uh, and again, they just reflect my own work. In my PhD, I relied quite a lot, as I said, on press reviews by French critics at the time that uh, these spectral works were being premiered and so on. I was talking to the musicologist Robert Pianchikovsky a little bit about this, and he sort of uh, poured cold water on that. And he said, well, why are you paying so much attention to what critics are saying? Critics, even nowadays, if we think of some of the ones that maybe we dislike in, say, the English press who are writing about classical music, they don't. sometimes they don't really say what more careful listeners are actually thinking when they're responding to this music. Sometimes they don't really reflect the opinion of other musicians or music lovers who go to these concerts. So it's kind of dangerous, I think, sometimes to rely, giving a litmus test to how music is perceived at the time. I think it's somewhat dangerous sometimes to rely too much on journalism. But that's just if I'm going out of my way to be negative about what Pickett does here, because as I said, that's that's sort of clutching at straws. I think in general, it's persuasive, but it's something to bear in mind, I would suggest. Do you think he looked a lot at journalism? Because I, I thought he, I mean, there was a lot of journalism in here, but I thought he was using it more as a, yeah, I guess he, he, he did use it as a kind of a primary source for some of the historical detail. I guess it's my own, again, my own biases. What I was more interested in was his looking at the archives, the Arts Council memos and so on, and then the interviews with and the Music Now participants. I guess he needed the journalism to give some connecting tissue to some of the, the detail, didn't he? Right, right. And I, I totally agree. The, the, the interviews are very useful here in constructing the narrative and so on, and also just making it making it pretty readable and, uh, and interesting. So to get back to what I mentioned earlier uh, and what I actually mentioned in an earlier episode, I, I feel like uh, this article benefits from actually having some things in common with, let's say, rock biography or that type of thing, where the theoretical focus is sort of in the background and the narrative is allowed to emerge. There are useful quotes uh, the agents or the actors or the characters or the personalities kind of come through on the page and so on. Yeah, I, I guess I don't have anything conclusive to say about that, but it's an interesting area. I think the, the style of the narrative and how how that might kind of uh, a little bit dipping a toe into to journalism. Some of the expressions that Pickett uses are kind of uh, casual. For example, he describes scratch orchestra as having some good buzz <laughs> on page and tutor he says they contributed to the ballyhoo or contributing to the ballyhoo was a live bbc broadcast and um, this type of thing is, is 
Well, I don't object to that at all. No, of course. Obviously, it's not really like a salient feature of the article. I'm just picking out little things. Yeah, no, but I I wonder to what degree that's actually quite a telling. Those are quite telling little details because they do kind of embody the broader focus and methodology, I guess, of the article, which is to dip into the historical record. Moving away from kind of uh, guy high abstractions towards kind of on the ground, thematic vernacular. yeah, I'm not sure what the right. Yeah, well, I guess just musicology as kind of real life, which is a, an admirable uh, thing to aspire to. I think one or two things I just wanted to go back to, or, or or kind of think about more before we kind of wrap up on this article is this period of 1965 to 75. So we talked about how this is a very possibly a very pivotal period in music, both because it sees the kind of coming to fruition of some of the post-war tendencies that. Pickett kind of um, Pickett kind of backstories a little bit. I just use backstory as a verb. Sure. That Pickett backstories a little bit at the start of this article, where he is surveying Cage and things that come after Cage and composition, which is responding to Cage and trying to reconceive, I guess, the relationship between conception and execution or performer and composer in Western music. And the way that those trails or kind of stories end up in improvisation and different spontaneous musics in the late 60s and 70s. So it's a very interesting and pivotal period. From my perspective, I think it's especially interesting because it's, in my arguments, it's the kind of historical starting point in a in a kind of a meaningful, substantial way of some of the musics I've written about in Sounds of the Underground. And in my article that I'm working on at the moment, it's, my further argument will be that this 65 to 75 period, this mixed avant-garde that Pickett is writing about, sets a lot of precedence for the expanded um, avant-garde or kind of fringe musics of the 70s and 80s where you do start to get popular music informing more and more practices of various musicians to the point where the divisions between if the divisions ever existed in the first place the divisions between various forms of avant-garde culture if you like or experimental culture ha- have been sundered even more than they are in this picket article what i'm getting at here is the 65 to 75 period seems very historically important but, and this is me imposing my own anxieties as a person writing about this stuff. I'm wondering to what extent it's become a kind of a, a Freudian primal scene to maybe a problematic degree. <laughs> That's a good, good way of putting it. But why problematic? Well, problematic because just insofar as when anything becomes so, when anything is invested with so much authority, we should start to be skeptical about it. Right. Okay. So. To think of one of the most obvious examples, Darmstadt or something like that. And then people like Martin Lydon are showing that actually it's not. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't accord to the, the stereotype. At the same time, though, as, as historians or simply as scholars, we do need to rely on some sort of periodization and some sort of historical rationale. So as long as you're cautious about it, I think that as a as a as long as one is cautious about it as a scholar, I, I'm not sure that it's inherently problematic. It brings up some of the concerns that we were gesturing at earlier about the use of the past to reflect the present, or the use of the present to inflect the past, and the way in which we look back to these periods and they become. I was using the term metonym earlier, but they become a kind of a, a substitute or a kind of a playing out of present concerns and my worry and anxiety and again i'm not holding pick it up to account for this i'm saying this mainly my own worry about my own article and book and so on is that this period becomes a kind of a substitute or a kind of a tool to illustrate or to play out the kind of theater of the now if you like yeah but what what's wrong with that nothing's wrong with it but i worry that it's a kind of a, a mischaracterization of 
what went on. Yeah, yeah, certainly that would be a danger. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably... Yeah, a lot of... It, I mean, that's that's a common methodological trope in, in historiography, isn't it? Historians will seize on a moment or a period as determinate with regard to what came later. I think it's, for me anyway, it's, it's a good approach. But uh, there are alternatives, of course, and uh, it's probably worth mentioning here that Jenny Gottschalk's book, published recently, Experimental Music since 1970, which, although I haven't read it in detail, I think is a bit more traditional in a scholarly approach, more of a survey in that regard. But it's healthy having all these different approaches. You're right, actually. I think that, in a way, resolves some of my anxiety, just to remind myself, the listeners, that there are different narratives and there are different periods which people are paying attention to. So even within I spoke earlier about the first generation versus second generation of improvisers. And that's something that refers to Brit mainly British and European kind of Dutch, British, Italian to a certain extent. Improvisers pick it in this article, pins that down to kind of 65 to 75. And the kind of end point of his historical story is the Foundation of Music's magazine, the moving away from the kind of first generation improvisers and the culture they represented. So the way that they were interacting and overlapping with free jazz and Cajun, post-Cajun composition. He thinks around 1975, you get a shift into a different format, a different kind of generational circumstance. But one way to lessen maybe the authority of that period is just to point to a different ones. So like you say, Jenny Gatchak has 1970 as a breaking off point. Ben Watson writes about the kind of classic, I think he even uses the term heroic period of free improvisation as being between, I think it's 1966 and 1973, or maybe even it's 1968 and 1973. Other people have written about other periodizations in their own way. So having these kinds of complementary, complementary, but necessarily kind of slightly contradictory periodizations is maybe helpful and maybe informs a richer historical picture. So maybe that is a, is a nice answer to my anxiety about the authority of the gesture here that Pika is making and that maybe I'm making in my own little article. The authority of the narrative voice or something. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so to wrap up very quickly, just to, to track back to Richard Barrett, actually, one of the, the ideas in this article is that, as we've been saying, composition and improvisation are inter, as, as his term, to use his term from his deadness article, interhandling each other, informing each other, shaping each other, shaping the concerns and sounds of each other's kind of traditions to a large degree at this period. Richard Barrett's work takes up where some of this stuff left off. Um, he talks about in an interesting essay on one of the pieces included on that, that release that Liam was referring to. Uh, so Blatverk, Richard Barrett has an interesting essay about this where he reflects on the different elements of determinacy and indeterminacy or um, composition and spontaneity, if you like, in that piece, which is built in these two layers so spontaneity and kind of predetermination are built into both the performance of the piece and into the the max patch which he uses um in the in the piece itself so there's different layers of kind of uh, spontaneity and determination in the piece and Barrett is just a great example of someone who is picking up the slack of some of these ideas basically some of these fault lines between what we're doing when we kind of predetermine a piece in written notation and the limits of that, and then what, how we might kind of reframe or rearticulate the relationship implied by that format, i.e. notation, between the composer and the performer. And some of these works on this disc tell us interesting stories about where that relationship might go to. So what I'm interested in 
your reaction and my reaction to this is the relationship between that, so the 21st century continuing of that story, and then some of the things that Pickett talks about in his article, this kind of fault line between indeterminacy and improvised or spontaneous music. Do you think anything's changed? Do you think it's still a fruitful kind of tension? Do you think it is a it is a meaningful spectrum from composition to improvisation or I certainly do think it's it's something that deserves continued attention and I think that's where musicology can actually play a good role. Some people writing about these issues and theorizing them because it's something that I mean it's something that was an issue back then and it continues to be now thinking through these problems. The fact that they're still with us I think testifies to their relevance and fruitfulness for practicing artists that's a very diplomatic observation. no i think i think you're right actually um and i think they i think the the continued presence of them in a lot of composition and in things like the new disciplines so we talked about that in episodes three and four um the cons the continued and kind of persistent anxiety and concern for the relationship between the composer and the performer and even just the figure of the composer in the first instance what that might mean for 21st century music culture which is defined much less clearly along high low lines etc as it maybe once was although that in itself is a bit of a historical brick bat which a lot of people have tried to complicate i think not enough uh, if i can make a grand statement not enough uh, composers in the notated tradition uh, for my taste are exploring like joint authorship we, we still are, are stuck in notated music with this sort of single author authority of the composer even among um, those uh, composers who maybe uh, present themselves as a as a more open to collaboration but at the end of the day it still all comes down to this single name on the score and uh, it would be interesting to to see more joint authored composition yeah i mean that that protocol is just seems to me to be such a problematic inheritance from the tradition i mean even in this case i, I don't know what the cover of the disc is like but it's it says richard barrett Music for cello and electronics performed by Iron Divorce. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Yeah, well, it becomes clear when you read the liner notes and find out about how the works were composed that Bart says, says openly enough in his notes, obviously, but it's much more collaborative than that. I mean, the, these pieces were written for and with Divorce specif specifically, and also in the Henri Pousseur studio, whose uh, engineers Bart worked with closely in, in coming up with the the tape or live electronic parts. Um, so it's, it's much more collaborative than this single author name would suggest yeah i mean it's it's culturally and socially useful to have a quilting point of a composer economically in terms of capitalism obviously that is a useful concept and convention to hold on to but i'm not sure if musically it is and maybe ethically i don't know if it's justified i'm not i'm not by the way just to clarify i'm not criticizing richard barr for that i'm sure it was just a an industry convention of of the label or whatever that he gets put forward as, as the kind of authority over this music, but just in a more general sense, that, that idea of, like you say, the single composer versus the idea of joint authorship. Sure. It's, it's, yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. I was just going to add that um, I recently went to a performance of a concert that could be qualified as a new discipline. Some of the composers were students of Jennifer Walsh's, but one of the pieces on the program was a joint authored work. There were two two young um, female composers who'd written it together. And I thought that was really cool. And I just wondered mm. about why we don't see more. Yeah, maybe this is one of the ways that free improvisation does have the moral high ground over composition insofar as, notwithstanding the fact that you do get what Ben Watson has called namism in free improvisation, because as soon as 
an improviser gains a name for him or herself, then they become implicated in the star system, which maybe some improv is trying to undermine. Notwithstanding all that, and that's just maybe an unavoidable fact of um, human culture, because culture is based on definitions and on reduction. That's how it is meaningful and how it's intelligible. Notwithstanding all that, improv very much sticks to a, or tries to stick or aspires to a kind of more of an egalitarian situation where if there is a group, if there is a group of people improvising, then usually they'll either be subsumed under a group title or they will just simply be listed on the sleeve. So it will be a list of four people and that's that. So maybe in that sense, the protocols or conventions of Western concert music have been potentially surpassed. Although, as I say, in Sounds of the Underground, there is all sorts of micro hierarchies in play in improvisations from specific social tensions between, for example, a Japanese and a British performing musician to gendered and raced tensions between, you know, a female and a male improviser, for example, um, as Georgina Bourne has talked about in Henry Cow, all these things are still very much present. It's not to say that improv is some fan fantasy realm of uh, pure, spontaneous uh, equality, but nevertheless, this figure of the single author embodied as much in the industrial commercialized selling of someone like Richard Barrett as it is in Many other composers from John Cage's Four Minutes 33 onwards, which, you know, always seemed to me to be completely ludicrously framed and sold as a piece of single author composition. So all these things considered, it seems to me maybe improv is the moral high ground. I don't know. I think we've, we've each got a lot more to say about that. And the points you just raised about John Cage, I could definitely talk a bit more about, but maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll leave that uh, for another episode. So shall we go into research in the round? Okay. So... I am this this time talking about uh, an edition of a journal that has already been published, but instead about a call for papers for a future journal. It's an issue of 20th century music, which will be themed on spectral thought. So I'll just read a little bit of the blurb. The guest editor is Jonathan Cross. Articles are invited for a special themed issue exploring the idea of spectral music in the widest sense. Terms spectral music and spectralism are now in wide use, but there's been surprisingly little critical discussion, particularly in English, of how the terms are used and what constitutes spectral music or more generally spectral thought. Um, so this issue will focus on spectral thinking and there's a list of suggested uh, topics such as the institutions of spectral music, spectralism and technology, analytical approaches to spectral music, spectral music and sound studies, philosophical context for the ideologies of spectralism and so on. And this um, issue will coincide with uh, the Oxford Handbook of Spectral Music, which is currently in the works. The issue is due to come out in 2018, spring 2018. The deadline for submissions of articles is April 2017. But it would seem to me that 2018 is going to be a spectral year. Um, so um, to almost complete the set of artists who we use in our theme music, I just wanted to draw attention to a call for papers as well as Liam. And this one is in Popular Music and Society, and it's for a special issue on Beyonce. Call for Papers went out in July 2016, and the deadline is 15th of November. And they state that these are the editors of this issue who will be Marquita Smith, Kristen McGee and Christina Bad. Submissions are invited for a special issue of Popular Music and Society on the musical and cultural impact of Beyonce. 
the 2016 launch of Lemonade and the Formation World Tour, along with Beyonce's numerous other mass-mediated performances, musical releases, and actions, inspire not only informal evaluations of her music and public persona, but also scholarly, in-depth investigations of the values, aesthetics, and cultural significance of her work. So if you're interested in that, go to the Popular Music and Society page or the IASPM page, the IASPM, the International Association for the Study of Popular Music page, for more details on that call for papers. So I think we'll leave it at that for this issue. So until next time, listeners, lots of love. Talk to you later.